Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Hello, I'm here with Gabriel uh, Winnett, who is an assistant professor of history at the, Univers- at the University of Chicago. His work is primarily focused on inequity, the history of capitalism in the United States, and the development of class structures. Um, and you're also uh, one of the more public left historians who publishes for you know popular sources. So you have work in The Nation, New Republic, Dissent, M plus one, etc. And I want to talk to you about a piece that you wrote uh, in M plus one on Barbara Ehrenreich, because I think it's probably one of the better breakdowns of her career and trajectory. Um, Ehrenreich's an interesting figure for me, because I've encountered her work at various stages of my life. And when Nickel and Dime came out, it was at a time where I was shifting my own personal politics in my early 20s away from a kind of what now would be called a proto-populist right position, but what back then was called paleoconservatism. And um, and she spoke, unlike most of the left of, of the aughts in the late 90s, to something I felt was more immediately true than what I was hearing um, in as a former working class kid who was in a university program who was made to read a lot of Derrida. So, um, <laughs> uh, so you can tell you, you already tell you my bias is there. However, um, and I also really loved her, her last two books, which I think were good kind of popular bro blacks against different trends and, and, uh, and like, abuse of pop psychology, um, how it related to labor discipline, et cetera. Um, but Aaron Reich's real like theoretical work actually is mostly kind of obscured by nickel and dimed and, and hasn't really been discussed your article. I mean, in your article, you discuss books that I didn't even know existed. And I thought I knew her work pretty well. So, what do you think are the general misconceptions about about Aaron Reich? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about Aaron Reich, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that story about nickel and dime resonating for you in that way. Mm-hmm. It's probably not a coincidence that it was the right book for you in that moment. Erin um, Reich herself was the daughter of a copper miner whose family had been uh, upwardly mobile over the course of her her childhood already, and then you know she continued that trajectory. And so I think 
um, her work is really, it resonates most, I, I think, for people, uh, typically for people who are experiencing forms of class mobility upward or downward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's at the heart of her concerns in some way. Um, you know, um, I think what is missing from Aaron Reich, from our kind of popular understanding of Aaron Reich, let's say, is the way that <clears throat> she was formed in and by the new left in a really fundamental way, both the anti-war movement and the feminist movement of the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and her participation in the struggles of that moment, which are informed by her own biography in various ways we can get into, but her participation in, that, in the struggles of that moment caused her to develop her th- not just theory of politics in the sense of like the kind of tactics or strategies that she likes or believes in, but at a kind of deeper, even kind of an existential level, her understanding of, um, you know, what it means to be a human being and how that, how that is related at a kind of irreducible level to political struggle. So when she died, I really, you know, I was rereading her work. I was thinking again about her. I've spent a lot of time thinking about Aaron Reich over the years And I really came to see her in a way that I had not fully appreciated before as a kind of existentialist for whom um, the questions about, that are very familiar questions to the new left, right, about complicity in the war machine, about complicity in patriarchy for women, right, what it meant to kind of confront the structures of power that are most intimate and personal and immediate for you. Um, She realized that, I think, those kinds of confrontations with um, not just an exterior structure of power, but elements of oneself um, are necessary for all kinds of politics and all kinds of struggle, including class struggle. And I think that uh, it's that realization that's at the center of really all of her work in some way. So, it's interesting. I actually even found your framing of it inter- uh, of it interesting. Her speaking at um, Braverman's funeral, um, and I I think about that because Braverman's book, while important, also very much reads like a critique of Fordism, like most of the Monopoly Capital books of that era, um, and I I found. Aaron Wright kind of interesting because she's not remembered for her kind of pivotal role in in taking some new left ideas in the development of something like we would call now social reproduction theory or Marxist feminism. Um, I guess social reproduction theory is larger than Marxist feminism, but they're definitely related. And and she did play a pivotal role in that one that I, I I vaguely knew about, like I knew she was important in those debates. Um, And then it's interesting to me to see her concept of PMC used the way it's been used because while her, uh, her book with her former husband, John has been kind of resurrected in the last three years. And, And interestingly, 
I think has been used more now than I've ever seen that term actually used in the seventies and eighties. Like definitely. Um, I was trying to figure out. I'm a scholar of. I, a scholar is a strong word, but I've read everything he's written, so I guess it counts. Of Christopher Lash. Um, and I was actually, you know, people can conflate him and Aaron Reich now because of, uh, uh, the, the resurrection of PM, uh, uh, professional managerial class theory. And I actually found, which is funny. I actually found an article that in, by him where he indicated not only had he read it, but he rejected it. Um, so I was like, ah, oh, yeah, people just aren't, people are resurrecting this stuff to contextualize. And I also know. Uh, when Compact Magazine ran, uh, you know, one of their clickbaity headlines, uh, Aaron Reich, enemy of the PMC, and 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 John Aaron Reich came in and like quickly was like, yeah, that that's not her ideas about what that meant. Um, how situated in you know, not just in the, I think we have to kind of talk about both these things, but. How situated is that idea of professional managerial class in both um, the 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 kind of dominant political economy of the of the new left and and that their critique of Fordism, um, and also uh, how is it actually all that useful for the economy now? Because when I was reading, you know, I reread that book recently to, to try to see if the uses of it and like a Catherine Lou's virtue hoarders or whatever had much to do with the original. And I actually couldn't say because, it, because the conditions of like, say entering a university that she's describing and what that was done for have fundamentally changed since she wrote that book in the seventies. Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, you know, I think it would really deserve a lot, like a significant amount of direct kind of, uh, original research, to be honest, which is not not my research. Um, so I can speak to it from a place of like impressionism. Um, you know, certainly um, the concept of the PMC doesn't just arrive uh, as a kind of form of analysis enabled by Fordism in terms of like, you know, that, that analysis is super structural to Fordism's political economic base, uh, although that's true, it's self-conscious about that, right? I mean, if you read the original essays that they wrote in the 70s, they describe the professional managerial class originating in the early 20th century with uh, the wave of amalgamation of capital, the transition to mass production, Mm-hmm. Um, the, right, the transition to, to corporate capitalism, uh, or what's sometimes been called, you know, managed capitalism, there's different terms for it, right? Um, or monopoly capitalism, which would ultimately be the term that they would use following Ehrenreich and following, or sorry, Braverman and following monthly review. Um, so they're quite explicit that, uh, this, this class, uh, that they are arguing exists is not a fundamental class to capitalism, but a uh, still a determinant product of, you know, a quite major uh, phase or sequence within the history of capitalism of which they are members and the development of which has um, allowed, not just created this class, but also because of the form of conflict 
a two-sided conflict in which it implicates this class, both downward with the proletariat and upward with the actual capitalist class. We can talk more about why that is. Your readers or your watchers may already know. Um, also created the possibility of a kind of, um, of multiple kinds, in fact, of PMC class consciousness. And so they're then arguing um, that the new left marks the first moment in which PMC class consciousness has really begun to move in a revolutionary direction, although incompletely and unsuccessfully. Um, you know, there were kind of ways you could sort of foresee something like that out of the progressive era, right? There were lots of progressive era, middle-class sort of self-identified radicals who thought of themselves as socialists, but they probably were also into like eugenics and stuff like that. Um, they were, you know, the control of the working class was much more uh, explicitly part of their agenda. And what's exciting and generative about the new left for the Ehrenreichs is that it's a moment of revolutionary consciousness among the PMC that at least wants, although can't achieve, a kind of unity with the working class. Um, so the second part of your question, um, I mean, I think that's debatable. My view would be that um, the rupture between the 70s and the present is is real, but it's partial. Um, mm. And right, we haven't totally rebuilt our society in that time. Um, and in fact, what the Aaron Reichs and other activists of the new left saw as the kind of first emergence of this class um, as a kind of major historical actor in the 60s and 70s, and uh, really actually in some ways signaled the beginning of a period where it was going to play an, a politically conservative role in many ways, although contradictory ways, um, right? And this is a story Erin Reich herself would tell in the kind of political apprenticeship of, you know, yuppie liberals to the project of neoliberalism, right? It's the kind of junior partners of neoliberalism to finance capital. Um, but in return for that participation in a kind of ruling block, um, and the continuing expansion of their social base in various ways, that's to say the continuing expansion of the university, the continuing expansion of home ownership, the continuing expansion of categories of professional employment. Uh, and those things are linked to each other, obviously. Um, in return for all of that, capital also continued to press downward on um, the economic security and autonomy of professionals such that Ehrenreich thought, and I would agree, the kind of radicalizing conditions of PMC social experience were actually intensifying over the course of the subsequent decades since the 1960s and 70s, such that by the time of Occupy Wall Street, she and John were united to write an article saying, uh, you know, the yuppie dream is actually dead now. Um, and, you know, professionals are becoming kind of wholly uh, you know, proletarianized. And I think that overstates the case some, but the principle is basically right. Um, so my view is that actually the kind of political contradiction that they identified in the 70s about the PMC has, far from going away, intensified. What I find interesting about Ehrenreich and, and the PMC thesis, um, which I, I will just go ahead and say, I, I, I find parts of the PMC thesis can, can, uh, compelling, 
but I'm such a strict Marxist in my head about what can, what the conditions of a class are that I'm always tempted to, I'm always tempted to call it the professional managerial strata and also to separate parts of it out for yeah. analysis because there are multiple incentive structures and, and consciousnesses that emerge from it. Um, but, uh, I mean, in some ways we, I think Aaron Reich has to be read in, in two different directions because her work has been used in two different directions. So for one, her work was really influential on Adolf Reed who defined the PMC far more limitedly than actually Aaron Reich did. And then her work has recently been used by people like Catherine Liu. And then also by post leftist, I say as a term that I don't even think is valid anymore because they don't use it. And I think a lot of them have just, come out and admitted and not left us at all and um but uh who have also reappropriated the term but in a different way in a way that actually expands it from uh like when i mean michael kayuna or swayuna um uh you know our 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 friendly neighborhood ex-socialist from i mean i guess he doesn't say he's ex but he works with a, a very right-wing think tank um uh who now writes for compact and was a big fan of, of my former um, quasi colleague, uh, Angela Nagel. I, I don't even know who they're talking about because they expand the term in so many different directions um, that I'm like, okay, so is it anyone who's ever had a degree ever, regardless of what they currently do? Is it like, um, and then they talk about this huge, massive working class, but it's clear that they mean, the industrial working class alone, maybe the industrial working class plus logistic workers. And then when I actually look up the stats for that, for, you know, for the developed world and for most of the planet, I'm like, that's not, that's not even the majority of the working class. Like in the United States, like if even including logistic workers and not taking out manage, uh, not taking out lower management and like purchasing uh, purchasers and whatnot, um, Logistics and manufacturing is only thirteen percent uh, of the workforce, like according to Bureau of Labor Statistics from two thousand and twenty-one. Um, so I, I feel like I'm boxing with shadows when I see the PMC used that way. And when I read when I read Aaron Reich, I don't feel that way, even if I disagree with elements of it. But yeah, yeah. I mean, Aaron Reich. Um, we could talk more about critiques of the theory, which you know, I'm there are version. I think there. are valid and important questions and debates we would want to have about it. Um, so let's return to that in a moment, maybe. Um, yeah, let's, let's put more that. Yeah. Um, but uh, to this broader point you're making, I mean, um, you know, I uh, I often disagree with Adolf Reed. He drives me kind of crazy, but he's he is a comrade. He's on the left. He is like doing some, in some way he's doing something useful with the idea. He's diagnosing a real phenomenon. Um, and, um, you know, he's putting Aaron Reich's work to use in a way that's not un- totally unrecognizable from what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he uses the concept of the black PMC, the thing that I think the place where I think he departs from her which does lay the groundwork for this kind of more serious misuse of her, although he's not himself participating in it, is the way that he has shed the element of, her, of um, mm-hmm. social dynamism in her theory, right? For her, and this goes back to her debt to Braverman, 
and her analysis of what makes the PMC radicalism possible, for her, the PMC, although it is an agent of hegemony, is not itself the ruling class. And that's critical because it means that it's always under forms of social and economic and potentially political pressure from above that generate the possibility of PMC radicalization um, and make the PMC a useful site of politics and field of mediate you know, as a field of mediation between the major classes. It's where class struggle is. It's a field on which class struggle is actually getting fought out. And the way that members of the PMC are kind of orienting themselves toward that is an important political question. Therefore for Reed, the PMC has no internal dynamism, right? It, or the black PMC anyway, that he's worried about it's, it's um, politically static. Um, and so I would critique him for that, although I think nonetheless that position enables him to see and diagnose certain things. And I think it's the kind of appropriation of that. I do think in significant part from Reed by these elements that are now on the kind of farther right. Um, like, I, I don't know this to be true, but I would guess some of the intellectual transmission actually does go through him, probably. It goes through yeah. Reed. I could actually, I, I can map it. It goes from Reed to Catherine Liu, which I still consider, even, you know, Catherine Liu, I also still consider a comrade even though I have huge problems with that book. Um, um, and then you have the, the this reappropriation of Lash, uh, which is what I'm actually, a lot of my work is, um, you know, working with Sean uh, Tyne, who is, is under the direction of one of Lash's students, uh, an intervention against um, this, this appropriation of, of Christopher Lash's work towards the right. Um, and you have that spectrum and then you get into Shreyuna, Nagel and, yeah. and, and, uh, et cetera. Um, and then you, you know, you get into the right wing of the compact magazine crowd and, and, and there's a, there's a full spectrum yeah. now. And, and by the time you get to the right end of that, as you were saying earlier, there's actually no materialism involved really whatsoever. Uh, I no, mean, they're, no. they're, they're interested in, kind of invoking class as a kind of rhetorical cudgel. Um, but uh, it, it seems to bear no really identifiable relationship to actual forces and relations of production. Yeah. Uh, there, it's not, it's purely cultural almost. And yeah. or, or if it is, if it is not cultural, it's actually, so, uh, it's actually a code word for right-wing theories of class, like theories from Sam Francis or from or James Burnham. Or Which are from, also purely cultural, ultimately, right? right? I mean, right. they, again, they might, they might make gestures of different kinds toward kind of material relations. They're rooted fundamentally in logics of race or something like that, right? Yeah, uh, Sam Francis is race. And, right. uh, and I, I will, I, not to defend um, James Burnham too much, but I will say Burnham's managerial revolution is is at least kind of uh, initially related to an argument about production um, and the development of, of corporate capitalism. Um, it is, but it exits Marxism. Oh, totally. I mean, yeah, because what, it, what yeah. it does is it picks up Walter Sombart, Max Weber and the elite yeah. school from the Italians. Uh, and you actually, he doesn't admit that until you read the Machiavellians um, to know that where, where, what um what burnham has done and what burnham has essentially done is taken uh the 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 
bureaucratic critique of Trotskyism removed it from both dialectics and from uh, like productive analysis, um, went and found a bunch of, frankly, in some cases, fascists, in other cases, uh, uh, defector conservatives, ex-Marxist, and built a theory around them. And one of the things I find interesting about Ehrenreich, and I don't know if she ever said this explicitly, is a lot of what the PMC thesis does is that it removes that critique of what of you know what she would see as the, the problems of of this new class emerging and monopoly capital from the right, which is where where in the fifty or the forties and fifties it pretty much was like. Um, yeah, there was a version on the left um, from like C. Wright Mills, for example. Yeah, the Power um, Elite book. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, in general, you know, through the post-war years, there was this kind of idea of convergence, right? That this kind of Soviet and U.S. kind of bureaucratic managed systems, although one is, you know, historically kind of for the last 50 years or so, a corporate capitalist system, mm-hmm. and the other is centrally planned because um, they're both kind of ruled by the um, techno-bureaucracies, uh, either, you know, General Motors or in Gosplan, um, are on a kind of convergence path. Mm-hmm. Um, and figures on both the right and the left in different ways thought that, um, but that follows a logic of uh, Weberianism at best, right? I think. Um, yeah, yeah. It's at, le- it, at best the, the most left wing form of it's Weberian, and usually it's worse than that. Yeah, right. I mean, right. So Mills is kind of like left populist Weberian, right? Um, but yeah, you can get much worse than that. And imp- it's important about like Burnham and elite theory in general, right? Is that its explicit premise is that there is no possibility of mass democratic struggle from below, right? That, that, that is not a factor in politics. Right. Um, right. And that specter is simply invoked by competing elites um, as a way of jostling for, you know, their, their moment in the sun. Um, but it's the, the agency never really resides there. And just to say another word about lines of influence here, you know, in addition to kind of peeling back some of the right-wing influence of the post-war period uh, of, like, elite theory that Erin Reich is doing, it's also really important that she has this new left Gramsci connection mm. because Gramsci himself is engaged as an Italian Marxist, is engaged with Italian elite theory, right? And, like, that is at some level what he is a critic of is the dynamic of – or the. Um, you know, what, what, like when you have figures like Pareto and other Italian elite theorist folks who argue that, uh, you know, there's just a, a sort of circulation among competing elites who are uh, attempting to kind of mobilize and exploit the threat and possibility of popular pressure. Gramsci is a theorist of leader mass relations, right? That's what hegemony is the theory of. But he's a theorist of it who's trying to figure out how you can acknowledge the reality of uh, political leadership as a real and important phenomenon in politics without uh, collapsing into an elite theory in which uh, popular forces exert no real power. Right. But this is, I think this is crucial because one of the things I noticed that that really upset me about how Aaron Reich was being used is she was being used with Michael Lynn, Michael Lynn and Peter Turchin. So Michael Lynn kind of, well, he's claimed to be all over the political spectrum, depending on what part of the life you look. He's, he's looking at from the right to the center left. Um, now he claims to be, you know, uh, an American uh, integralist or corporatist, which people who 
know history should be a little bit more stunned by than they are. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, what I find fascinating, and then Peter Turchin is a clear dynamic scholar, but both of them actually have Italian elite theory assumptions about class that people don't notice, which is that they view um, the working class as essentially stagnant, just siding between uh, in Lind, it's it's you're picking between the professionals overclass or the petit bourgeois overclass, and that explains all of politics. And there's no organic working class politics, right? Um, uh, and and it's not just that there's none now. Uh, the assumption, which is not stated, but but very much seems to be in the way the, in the way those people use people like Peter Tertian, where it is stated, is that no. Peasants, never has been and never can be. Yeah, never has been, never will be, never can be. Like it is just you are picking between elites. They and these, you know, basically plebs will side with one elite or another. And these fucking people have the nerves to call the yeah. left elitist. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I mean, that, what's wild to me, and they have used PMC theory. I mean, Lind is honest. He says specifically he's not a PMC theorist, but, but. If you go look at these magazines from the Bellows to Compact or whatever, you will start seeing that they will equate Ehrenreich with Michael Lind and with Peter Turchin. And and Peter Turchin claims to not be political. Uh, Having read a lot of his books, I can see why he thinks that. I also don't think that's true. Um, But I, I, I very clearly saw even people who, you know, I mean, I saw Angela Nagel cite both of them positively after she split and i'm like do, do are people not paying attention to the assumption that, that they're literally telling you they're invoking the working class because they think that that's how elites work that that they view the working class as essentially like a force of nature that can't do anything on its own but you can you can harness like harnessing the wind um to prop up a counter elite. And in the most right-wing versions of this, which is Sam Francis, that's explicitly stated and also racialized. So, um, so it was interesting to me, you know, realizing this about Aaron Wright, because at first I was like, when the first time I ever heard PMC theory, which was probably right after Occupy, I remember just going, that sounds like James Burnham. What? what the hell is Aaron Reich doing? <laughs> and like, cause that doesn't, and I, I thought that not because I thought she was, it was corrupting or anything. It's cause I was like, I read nickel and dime. How is that person, that person? Like, and then slowly as this stuff became more trickled into the discourse all across the political spectrum on, on, on the, particularly the social democratic left, honestly, um, I started reading more and more of these old articles and realizing, Oh, that's not what, Aaron Reich meant by it. Also, Aaron Reich was really trying to, you know, I, I will situate her. The, the other thing she's trying to do is there was all these revolutionary subject searches in, you know, during the monopoly capital period. And Christopher Lash writes about this quite well, uh, where, you know, you're looking for, well, the students are going to be the new subject of history are X, Y, and Z. And Aaron Reich seems to be pushing against that subtly, but admitting that there's a reason why the students have become important. Right, exactly. So I think what's so helpful about Aaron Reich, and ultimately the reason that I turned to her as much as I did, is because she allows you to make these two moves. One is to say, um, 
from the the social position you occupy, uh, you can see something about the world and figure out a path toward, you know, assuming that you're not like an owner of capital, right? Like for, for anyone who is employed for work in some form um, or part of like a very broad popular masses kind of view, you can look at your position and figure out something useful to for yourself to do politically. You have a political role to play. And in that way, she concedes something partially to the kind of more populist side of the new left that says, yeah, students, you know, whoever, it's all the working class, really. She says that is not analytically correct, but the core insight of that, which is that like students and professionals have something to add is correct. Um, and it's correct simultaneous to a kind of more strict Marxist view of um, the kind of role of the working class in social transformation. And the PMC is a theory of how, I mean, as a theory, it's a theory of how both of those can be right. Um, And I find that so useful because otherwise what we wind up doing, I think on the left in a moment of defeat when left-wing ideology is so concentrated in, you know, non-classically proletarian places like the largely white professional middle class, right? That like does define DSA, for example, largely, um, not exclusively, not exclusively, right? There's not the only element there. Um, it's obviously an important element and limitation on DSA. Uh, the theory of the PMC gives us a way of saying, yeah, okay, that's a problem for sure. We need to deal with that problem. We need to engage with it. Um, but it doesn't like, mean that we're not allowed to speak, not allowed to act, not allowed to do anything, that we have to kind of engage in self-castigation or something like that, right? Like we can just look honestly and clearly at ourselves and our social situation and a social context in which we're operating and try to figure out how do we confront the particular forces that bind professionals to capital and to the capitalist class? How do we confront those in order to realign uh, the middle class with the working class and in so doing, potentially also hasten the develop, development of working class radicalism. Because that is some of the payout of her theory is that because the middle class helps control the working class, if you actually have middle class rebellion, you will also make working class rebellion more possible. If um, nothing else, because we have skills that would be, it would be really useful for workers to have. And if we taught it to them, it would empower them at minimum. Like... <laughs> yeah, and I also, I mean, there's an analogy in her work, which again depends on Braverman, um, or she mm. gets from Braverman to the early 20th century when Taylorism and the assembly line are destroying um, the old craft aristocracy and industrial production, which in any given factory, in many industries, still, you know, there were there very skilled workers who learned the trade from their father, um, who controlled the pacing process of production who, you know, had had these very powerful craft unions in the late 19th century. Um, And, um, you know, scientific management was a program to break open the bottlenecks of production those workers operated, ultimately a successful program, such that by the 1920s and 1930s, um, those craftsmen had largely lost their control over the pace of production, but they still existed as an occupational stratum within the factory and in many, many cases were actually then actually became uh, key leadership figures in the formation of the CIO 
and the destruction of their kind of previous privileged position enabled the solidarity of, of industrial unionism for the first time. And so Ehrenreich explicitly at various points draws an analogy between, um, you know, those kinds of skilled workers in the early 20th century, like Walter Ruther, and for example, don't we want to criticize him for various things, uh, was a tool and die maker. And it was mm. a very, that's a skilled position in an auto plant. Um, and she draws an analogy between the destruction of the kind of privileged position of those skilled workers in the early 20th century and the degradation of professional autonomy and economic independence in the late 20th century as roughly parallel processes of de-skilling that are resisted in the moment, but then also dialectically create a possibility of larger forms of unity. Right. Which, you know, to, to state this for my, for, for my friends who insist on everything being stated in classical Marxist terms, proletarianization. Yes. That's, right. I mean, they use the term proletarianization quite often. Right, right, right. Yeah. right. Um, and and with, that, with that, I mean, it's also the, the, the classical, like when you think about the second international merger thesis, part of that is a class admission that the ownership of the, 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 the primary people in the socialist movement we're not the same and we're not from the same class as the workers movement. And they knew that. So like workerism, while important, I don't think it's ever been the default um, position of Marxist socialist at all. So. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that we have to resort to any idea that uh, socialism or Marxism is organically the possession of one class or the other, or necessarily rises from one place or another. There's Thank huge- you, Yukosh for trying to make that the case though. Right. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, huge, great histories of, um, you know, like, I mean, the making of the English working class, for example, Thompson's classic is all about English workers kind of getting most of the way to inventing Marxism, like in the late 18th century, um, you know, before Marx himself has been born. Um, and, uh, just, you know, in, in a kind of, organic process arising out of, you know, their immediate conditions of class struggle. The point is that the idea can kind of arise or versions of the idea of socialist politics or, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that, uh, or Marxism, once Marxism exists, can arise from kind of multiple locations in, uh, you know, the capitalist class system. But at any given specific historical moment, it is likely arising from an identifiable location. And then the job of socialist politics becomes thinking about, okay, what is the specific location where it has arisen in our moment? What has made it possible for it to arise there? And what does that location have in common right. with kind of proximate or neighboring locations so that we can figure out how to spread it? And, um, you know, that just that requires us to be concrete and specific about, uh, you know, the sociology of capitalism, about the social relations of production, about questions of, you know, residential geography, occupational structure, all these kinds of things to figure out like, okay, where are the kind of lines of possible increase of organization and radicalization? So one thing I, I think is interesting that we haven't done yet before we get to the critiques of the PMC theories, I do want to, I do think it actually is, although tangentially related to Ehrenreich's Marxist feminism. And maybe you disagree with me, but I think, it, I think it's in there, um, which is all, which also makes contemporary uses of it kind of funny because um, these the people who are using PMC now are some of the most pop, uh, hostile people to any kind of theory of social reproduction that isn't just, I guess, worker goes to factory. 
um, has babies, more workers go to the factory. But um, so, what do you see the relationship as there? And what, like, maybe, maybe even before we can get to that, and I am bracketing so we come back to the critiques of PMC theory, but um, the fair ones. Um, what, what do you see as the relationship between how Aaron Reich was trying to understand uh, gender relations and class relations? Because she's also seeing, you know, she's seeing some of the same things that Christopher Lash is seeing, but drawing the opposite conclusion from them. But like the way that, you know, 70s feminism had really kind of, you know, empowered largely middle-class women in a certain way. Uh, but also they had become, you know, uh, both a, in her mind, both agents of capital and the patriarchy in some ways in that process. So how, how is it related? Yeah. I mean, PMC, Arabic's theory of PMC arises directly out of her experience of like the feminist movement, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, 72, 73, she's teaching at SUNY Old Westbury. She teaches, co-teaches this course with Deirdre English on women and health. And the women's health movement was uh, kind of the sector of the feminist movement uh, where Erin Reich was most involved and committed, partly because she had a PhD in biology, um, you know, for various reasons. I mean, she was teaching nursing students, I think, at Old Westbury, and that was part of her kind of interest in this. Um, and she writes, they write this book together called, uh, witches, midwives, and nurses, uh, which is like very close in some ways to Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the witch, um, thematically, you know, it's about, um, the way that, uh, the medical profession and medical knowledge, uh, serves to consolidate control over women's reproduction in male hands, right. By suppressing forms of women's knowledge, which is midwives, nurses, sequentially over time, um, and monopolizing um, the kind of means of scientific control and production uh, in, in the sphere of reproduction. Um, and already within that account I just gave, right, there is a little hint of the PMC, right, in the role of professional knowledge, enacting social control, and reproducing social hierarchy at large. Um and also within it, although it's, you have to think about it for a second, right, is the possibility of contestation when you think about the figure of the nurse, right? Because the suppression of the midwife who, I mean, they don't go out of existence, but as a profession, it sh certainly shrinks, um, doesn't mean that women are expelled from the process of caregiving, right? It means that they are subordinated and their professional autonomy and economic independence is, uh, is destroyed. And instead, they play the role uh, over the course of the 20th century, increasingly, of nurse. So as this kind of professional, somewhat, but still not autonomous figure who is subordinated to the male figure of the doctor. Um, and in the contest for control between doctor and nurse, a contest which down to the present plays out every day and every floor of every hospital, um, right, the theory of the PMC, you're almost all the way there already, actually, to the theory of the PMC. Um, so, um, you know, Aaron Reich is like really, really directly concerned with these questions of um, what control over knowledge means for both the relationship between women and men and the relationship between the classes. And that 
you know, these things are tangled up in a kind of irretrievable way by the dynamics of monopoly capitalism over the course of the 20th century. Um, and moreover, I think, at a, again, at a deeper level, this is sort of where I started this conversation, um, her basic kind of insight that, like, middle-class people have the possibility of engaging in emancipatory politics, but only if they're willing to kind of look inward and think about the ways that they're implicated in relationships of exploitation and oppression uh, and their constructive participations on the other side of doing that. I think that as a way of thinking about politics is really deeply indebted to the feminist movement, the practice of conscious practice of consciousness raising, uh, which she certainly participated in all that kind of thing. Um, so Aaron Reich, I don't think, I mean, she certainly, you know, was critical of various forms of like, um, you know, middle-class feminism. She was a socialist feminist. She wrote very influential and still quite widely read uh, sort of explanatory essay. What is socialist feminism that, you know, mm-hmm. feminist circles, DSA read all the time and so on. Um, but she never really distances herself at all from the 70s feminist movement. It was central to her identity. And I think what's so powerful about her as a figure is she gave us a way of taking the insights of that form of Marxist feminism, um, which is what it was, and uh, applying them widely to all kinds of spheres of politics that at least on their surface don't immediately appear to be about gender. Um, And, you know, I think that is what an emancipatory politics of gender the radical and emancipatory politics of gender has to be able to do, right? A kind of uh, bourgeois politics of, of gender will in fact seek to confine the sphere of uh, what gender equality and women's liberation might, what else it might implicate. Exactly. You know, so it, it, I mean, we joke about girl bosses and that, but that it is sort of the manifestation of bourgeois feminism. What I find interesting about Ehrenreich is kind of a double change. So I, I've I became very fascinated with Marxist, uh, with Marxist and socialist feminism, um, going all the way to Clara Zetkin and complaining that like, oh, we don't even have all the text of the early Marxist. Uh, they wouldn't consider themselves feminist, but the early Marxist women's advocates, um, but. You know, this time period, you have a lot of Marxist feminists, and they either, a lot of them either stay Marxist or they stay feminist, but they don't stay both. And Aaron Eric's actually not unique, but is one of the few people who stayed both. Um, and so that makes her an interesting figure, particularly in light of the popularity of her work in the aughts. I mean, because I mean, it was a it it was an interesting time. I mean, when I like to remind people that, like in the late 1990s, Hart and Nagiri's Empire, which is not an easy book to read, was on the bestseller list. And then, you know, uh, in the middle of the Bush administration, Nickel and Dimed was was what um, sold millions of copies. It was just all over the place. Like yeah. I read it, I read it in in teacher college, like, um, and it unfortunately. I will say Nickel Dime was often used to liberal ends, but the book was, it, it, it was a flashpoint, like I said, for me and a lot of other people, like, oh, there is still a left that does actually still care about, about workers' issues. And I, I do have to remind people that before 2007, 2008, 2009, uh, 
that really wasn't spoken about that much. It's not that it didn't exist. It, of course, it existed. I mean, I hadn't encountered it, but it wasn't, you know, if, if you can say anything about, and this is something you apply in, in your in, one, in plus one piece, is that the generation gap that the new left finds itself and the generation gap that, say, the whatever we want to call this current left period, the, you know, the post-millennial left, whatever, finds itself uh, do rhyme in the sense that the prior generation... Um, uh, the left had been reduced to basically weird sectarian movements and was very small. Um, and and it's interesting to think about that in the context of Aaron Reich, uh, particularly when you talk about that Braverman piece, because the, you know we are about to see the new left expand rapidly in all kinds of crazy ways, anti-revisionist, liberal, etc., um, and then collapse within five years. Like I mean, like between like. 77 and and 82 it just like liquidates itself um and you know i'm not i'm hoping that doesn't happen with us but but she's an interesting bridge figure because she's there for the rise and decline and and the rise again um uh, and i guess that's true for a lot of the of the of the kind of younger new left people that we're losing now but she seemed to be particularly attuned to the difference in ways that other people kind of weren't. I mean, cause she didn't seem like a dinosaur was just repeating the same shit she said in the sixties and seventies. Right. 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 Well, I mean, she, so she was, um, she's an interesting figure generationally in this way. She's not a, quite a baby boomer. She was born in 41. Yeah. She's a, she's a what silent generation. Well, is it silent? Or I, I don't remember, remember, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, she's older than most of the kind of classic. I mean, you know, there were a number of figures actually in SDS and so on of, of that age bracket. But she's I would say than, the boomer contingent of the new left is overstated. Actually, yeah, but for this reason, I mean, it's like a, I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, how old are you if you are in college in 1963? I mean, for my dad, for example, was born in 1946, which is mm. the first year of the baby boom, um, which means he got to college in 1964, right? Uh, but like when you think about who like where was the new left the student movement beginning already it had already started in the immediate years before that by people who were not 18 years old but were in their 20s already in some cases right so mm-hmm. she is in that kind of older cohort um she also gets to the movement slightly late in certain ways um so she did a phd at rockefeller university in new york in cell biology uh i mean she had some political influences on her already her father had been this kind of you know CIO Democrat, basically, and, you know, it was a minor. Um, but, um, you know, it's in the, in the second half of the sixties that she gets involved in the civil rights, in the anti-war movement. So she missed what is a classic line of entry, which is through the civil rights movement, uh, in the kind of first part of the sixties. Um, and, you know, then in the feminist movement and, and on from there. So she's kind of a little bit out of sequence in an interesting way. Uh, not insanely so, right, but a little bit. Um, and I think that maybe gives her some perspective on it. But I also think, um, and this is the key point, I guess, I think that her, she was a very self-conscious person. Uh, not narcissistic, really, from my perspective, as much as I can tell. And I think, in fact, in some ways she was kind of socially a little bit withdrawn, I get the impression. Um, mm. but she was really interested in 
her own experience and what her own experience meant and wanted other people to be interested in their own experiences and what those meant for them. Um, she talks about this in her, her kind of pseudo memoir, Living with a Wild God. Um, and I do think that that positioned her, maybe along with the kind of slight out of phase thing, um, to start asking by the mid seventies, like, okay, what are we doing here? What is this all about? <laughs> um, in a way that was more non-sectarian than most of her comrades were able to do and was more, um, I mean, for lack of a better word, was more like open and vulnerable. I don't mean in a kind of like pop psych sense, but was just like more willing to think about like, oh, like where, like the political moves I'm making and my comrades are making, like, is it possible that there are lines of influence on us that we haven't particularly thought through that well? And we should be willing to kind of like go there, right? And think think about what is actually shaping and determining um, the maneuvers we've been making. And it was that vulnerability, right? That idea that like, you know, we, we might be caught up or implicated in historical forces that we uh, are acting out less than consciously. Um, that I think, you know, which depended on her feminism, um, that uh, I think made her able to keep up with the times in a certain way, right? And to kind of keep both to stay true to her basic kind of theoretical insights, uh, but to update them, to be willing to transform them to some degree, um, as opposed to kind of just keep hammering at the same slogan that she had, you know, developed in 1971 or whatever. Um, and it's for that reason that she has been so important, I think, for the kind of post-millennial left or whatever, because she both is a bridge to the new left, right? She does carry some of its spirit and its ideas, but not in a sentimental way, not in an antiquarian way. Rather, she bottled up some of the kind of uh, lessons that were, could be learned from its defeats and its failures. Uh, and she like made sure that, that that, you know, that product that she bottled up didn't go rancid, right? She kept it fresh uh, and then was able to give it to us. And it turns out that because we do share dissent from that kind of middle-class political formation, like literally DSA, I don't know if you're in DSA, but just to use it as an example, DSA arises out of the merger of DSOC and NAM, New American mm-hmm. Movement. NAM was the organization that she joined in the early 70s out of the ashes of SDS. There's a lineal kind of you know yeah descent. dsa is a is a descendant uh, the way i trace it from dsoc which is a descendant from the spa uh from the from the collapse of the spa uh, of which harrington and shackman were associated and the nam is from the remains of the sds and so the dsa does have origins in the and kind of both the worker and the student movement of like literally, I mean, like, yeah. like, like, you know, right. both the worker and the student movement of of the of the prior generation, right? And I'm SDS, not a member of the DSA either, but but yes, yeah, right. and SDS itself, right, is a descendant of Students League for Industrial Democracy, right? Um, which is a kind of student adjunct to, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, so you know, I think because we both share social conditions, modified but identifiably related to the ones that she was diagnosing. We share a social position akin to the one she occupied. And because she kept her kind of self-conscious analysis of those conditions and of those positions uh, kind of fresh and updated, 
um, you know, when it was time, she was there with a set of ideas that we had to grapple with. I don't know if we can directly put them to work. That's why there's been so much conflict over how to use these ideas. But nonetheless, like had something to say to our present in a way that, um, you know, people who've been hammering the same point since the early 70s often just don't. Exactly. I, I mean, I think about how she has been relevant in all of the three major left shifts uh, that have happened in my lifetime, which is, um, I, you know, I'm, I am too young for the, for the first anti-war movement. Uh, I'm not really, I'm inchoate until the end of the nineties, but I, I, I was part, I was interested. I wouldn't say I was part. And I, I went to see and went to the battle for Seattle for the alter globalization movement stuff uh, was actually de-radicalized and conservatized by it, which is a kind of separate story. I'm not going to get into today, but, and then, during the the you know the the anti Bush year uh, the Bush era left she becomes important again. Um, although I will say in the way she was taught and and engaged with her radicalism was softened until Occupy, like Occupy is when that radicalism becomes obvious again. Um, and then as we shift from Occupy into the Bernie movement, she's still relevant i mean i mean she's she's engaging with people up to her death and writing books pretty much pretty close to her death which is also kind of impressive and i have a strange feeling that in about 10 years we're going to realize that she was more important than we would think she was as far as like the way this is transmitted and the way this has been maintained um and how she was relevant in ways that a lot of the other people who were still around i mean there's there's tons of well a lot of them are dead now, but there's tons of, of new leftists who have died in the last five or six years where I'm like, they were still alive. I haven't heard anything out of them since the early eighties or something like. Yeah. I mean like Hayden, for example, you know, died, but maybe five or so years ago and Hayden, I think lived in, in many ways on a lot, not totally honorable career. You know, he got involved in kind of left-wing electoral politics in in California um, he had a weird Israel moment. I forget the details of it, but he did something around Zionism. It didn't make me happy. But like, you know, he was out there trying to do stuff. Lots of them were um, in different ways, um, you know, and nurturing new movement activists in different ways. But I do think that part of the explosiveness of Aaron Reich's ideas, right, the ways that like um, they have become these major terms of debate again, um, mm-hmm even if widely abused in your view, in my view, um, right. That is because uh, they have, they have something powerful to say to our moment. Uh, And it's difficult to think of other figures. um, I'm sure there are some who we're not thinking of right now, but it's difficult to think offhand of other figures uh, who arise so directly out of the kind of SDS split moment um, who then, play that kind of role intellectually. Agreed. So I guess this is good to pivot to the other part of our, um, our discussion and to use it as a segue. What do you think are the fair critiques of PMC Mm. theory? Yeah. Well, I guess there's two kind of places to go with this one, which I would disagree with, but I would, you know, I, I think is where you're coming from and I can understand is about like, what is a class actually, right? And what does it mean to say this is a class, which they're quite insistent on. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, I don't have a problem with that because um, I think of 
classes as not things but processes, as spaces of development, which always involve differenti- internal differentiation mm-hmm. as much as uh, homogenization. Um, and so given that, I just, I'm not that concerned with um, identifying kind of hard, hard boundaries. I don't think it's possible to identify hard boundaries between classes most of the time. I think they typically have blurry edges and we can kind of see agglomerations around the edges of, you know, different or different positions in the kind of class structure. And so I don't, I'm not really bothered whether we call the PMC a class or a stratum or a layer, because I don't think that um, fixed positive categories are important for class analysis. Actually, I think there's fluctuating structures of relations. Um, but I can understand that I think it's a valid tradition or a valid position within the Marxist tradition to insist on a harder definition than that. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's, that's one kind of valid line of, of debate we could have. Uh, the other is about the M and the M I do have a harder time with in PMC, the managerial. Yeah, um, that's my other critique too, is I'm yeah. like, why is management in there? They're different. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, she and John addressed this in one of the essays. Uh, not that convincingly, if I recall, um, but um, it does. That does seem not like a completely different layer. Um, you know, I think it's possible to imagine elements of the analysis that could apply for elements of what we would think of as management. Basically, uh, I certainly think there is probably some kind of like discursive and cultural bleed between. Mm-hmm. Uh, the professional and managerial layers of the middle class, and also the, even the petite bourgeois layer, which is totally outside of this analysis, right? Which she's explicit is that's different from the PMC. Um, but uh, I think still, nonetheless, the ways that they are imbricated in the relations of production are different in important ways. Um, maybe some of that is contingent on the structure of the law and the ways that it defines managers as. Uh, you know, external to the working class in terms of questions of like unionization and so on. Um, but I think some of it is probably more fundamental than that. Um, and so I, you know, I, you'll you probably even in this conversation so far, if someone wanted to go back and listen, they would hear me slipping from saying PMC into professional layer, professional middle class, middle mm-hmm. class as a way of evading the M problem, because I don't, I don't think it is damning for the theory as a whole. Um necessarily but i don't i don't think it fits that neatly i think the abuse comes from actually some of the most abusive things is like people telling me that for example um i don't know why they always pick blue hair as the example for this but but you know treating some uh quote blue hair academic as the same as uh hr which is a common rhetorical tactic even on the right that I'm like, they're not the same people. They're, I've worked in a corporation. They're not the same people. <laughs> like, like I have worked in both academia and in a corporation. Those are different people. They have different educational backgrounds. They come from different backgrounds. Like, yeah, I, the only thing that they share is that they're in a weird, like, management, particularly if man, particularly middle management, is in a weird kind of class structure in relation to workers where it's salary. I mean, it's salaried. Yeah. But it's also, you know, usually subsistence off rages unless you like, they don't start having bourgeois characteristics like in the, in the ownership of production. And so they're pretty high up. Um, but 
it's different, you know. And I think the other thing that happens with the professional, and this may be something that that I think Eric's explicit about, but does get muddy, is in the United States, doctors and lawyers would sometimes be PMC and sometimes be petite bourgeois. Now, for me, that's not a hard thing because I'm like, well, do you own your practice or not? Like, right? But for a lot of people, that gets them tied up, I guess, because what? how can you have a title? And it it's two different class functions depending on this. I'm like, yeah, well, don't let me give you theories of surplus value by Marx then because it's going to blow your mind. Um, since the same person could literally be proletarian, uh, productive, proletarian and one class unproductive proletarian and an uh, unproductive worker in another is unproductive pro actually probably still fair because Marx doesn't see productivity as a proletarian marker. That's a later development. Um, and then, uh, and then, um, and then the same person could also be petite bourgeois when they're working for themselves. Like that's not hard for even classical Marxism. It's not something that they, that they didn't realize. Um, uh, the idea, for example, that I've always heard that, well, you know, people being in multiple class positions messes with Marxism. And I'm like, uh, read Marx, because he knew that, like, even at the time, even in early capital. Occasionally, there are people in multiple class positions. Um, right. In fact, 19th century industrialization was very heavily characterized by partial proletarianization of peasants uh, connected to seasonal variation. Right. Yep. Um, and. Uh, you know, that like requires some work to make sense of, but it's not a totally confounding concept. Uh, it's the kind of thing that, you know, the most crude anti-Marxists will throw at Marxism. Like, well, how can Marxism be true when actually a lot of workers are really also peasants? And it's like, if you have a problem explaining that, like you're just getting ready to leave Marxism, actually. Yeah, I was say, you won't be a Marxist for long. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, and this brings me to the other interest, part of interest me in your work. And... Um, you know, I, I suspect as part of your interest in Ehrenreich, but you've been kind of kind of, your historical work is tracking the changes of class composition. And I found an article that you wrote. Where was it at? Where where you anyway, you've wrote about it a couple of times where you talked about the decline of industrial labor and then the rise of nurses and care labor and the class like the, what that says about class change. Um, would you like to go into that? Because I do see it as de- directly relevant to all the stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So that's like actually, you know, the PMC stuff is actually a sidebar for me as a, as right. a scholar. Um, and what you just alluded to is has been my kind of main project for the last 10 years, um, culminating in the book I published last year, uh, which is called The Next Shift. Let me promo it since we're here. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just try to explain the connection as I see it, which I kind of backed my way into to some extent. So, um, you know, it seemed to me, I started graduate school in 2010. I was a kind of like callow Marxist. I was interested in and had some kind of nominal commitment to Marxism and nothing politics, but I, you know, it didn't mean that much at that point. I had read Capital. I had barely been involved in any kind of struggles. You know, those kinds of things changed for me over the next years. Um, but I had some inkling already even from that naive position that um, deindustrialization had done some damage to Marxism, right. In, in eliminating um, it's kind of classical subject, obviously. And uh, that didn't seem like it was, 
quite right to me in as much as um, that seemed to conflate a kind of instance of a category with the category itself, right? That like, there's not strictly a reason, it seems to me. Um, and I knew enough Marxism even at this point to have this intuition. There's not strictly a reason why um, you have to have factories and factory workers to speak about class and class conflict and surplus value. Um, there are distinctive things about factories and factory workers that we can talk more about. And it's not that the elimination of them and the replacement with a new kind of proletariat has no consequences for the it structure. It makes it harder to organize it for one thing. <laughs> it has a, yeah. It has a whole bunch of consequences and it potentially is useful in trying to figure out where we are in the history of capitalism, but it doesn't obviate the kind of basic, most basic terms of analysis of Marxism. Mm-hmm. So I want I was sort of interested in that problem. Um, and that seemed to be like a historical problem because, you know, there used to be this thing and now it's gone and something else has arisen and it's said that's the story of change over time. I did my PhD at Yale. I was living in New Haven. Uh, you know, New Haven is a former factory town, um, Winchester repeating arms. You know, it was a huge rifle factory and put 15,000 people or something at its peak, closed in the 90s. Um, and now the university, the university hospital were the main employer by far. Um, and, you know, that allowed the city to tell a story about it. You know, the kind of commercial classes and city fathers tell a story about the city of a kind that we've heard about, you know, every post-industrial city, basically. Like, oh, you know, we have these anchor creative institutions, professional institutions, attract young, new, educated people here, cities having its revival. And partly because I was becoming involved in, you know, labor struggles and other kinds of struggles in New Haven, I felt like that's the story you're going to tell about that. I mean, like, sure, that's true. It's level. that's me, right? I'm part of that story as a graduate student. Um but there are also all of these other people who are connected to these institutions who are like wage laborers working in this racialized labor market of this like apartheid city, um, you know, cleaning the buildings, serving the food, changing the sheets, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And I'm in union meetings with them. Um, like, where are they in that story? Um and so that was partly my interest in Aaron, part of my interest in Aaron Reich was that I was, you know, trying to organize our grad student union and, you know, in a kind of um, coalition with other workers on, on campus and in the community. Um, and so I had to figure out this very Aaron Reichian question of like, what do I have in common with these other workers? What separates us from, from what separates me from them? How can we, you know, develop what we have in common and eliminate what separates us? Uh, and that's what PMC theory is all about, ultimately. Um, but then there was also this kind of larger historical question of like, what is this new working class? Where did it come from? Why does it have the structure it does? And also, to some extent, what are its characteristics that have made it so easily disappeared culturally or discursively, right? Like, here I am in this union meeting, um, with these kinds of workers who are like supposed to not exist in some form, um, right. In this kind of like post-class post-industrial knowledge economy. Yeah. I had a similar revelation when I was sitting in a, uh, I have been in union, in unions recently because I lived mostly in areas of the country that weren't allowed to unionize for the for, in public sector work anyway. Um, but uh, I, I, I was sitting in a union realizing that we had, and, and this is unique to the West, but we had administration also represented by our union. But I was like, but where you have strategically put 
staff, you know, non-licensed staff in a completely different union. So we don't ever interact with them. Um, and, and I realized like, if I wasn't so aware of that, basically because of my own personal background and this, you know, also just like, where are all the people I actually see on a daily basis who I have a labor aristocratic relationship to really? Um, and why, why is it, a, why are they not in my union? And I, I, I started learning that, that there have been movements to reform that in various like local chapters and re, and state and regional chapters. But uh, in general, it means that we are kept from, you know, the, the center tier of the labor force that in many ways in, in teaching has been, it really has been increasingly proletarianized since I've started working in it. Um, but we're kept from seeing ourselves as, uh, part of the wage labor, the true wage labor part of the schools. Now, again, that's different than, than pub, uh, private sector workers, et cetera. But from the standpoint of understanding what you're talking about, that's pretty clear. And then you also realize that in a lot of these areas, this is not true where I live in Utah, cause it's a high growth tech region, but it was true where I grew up in Georgia, where after the mills left, it was the military. And after the military fell back and totally leave, it was schools and hospitals and not in the educated positions, but in like the thousands of everything from, you know, the person who has to figure out all the fucking billing codes to the person who's mopping the floor. Just, huge swaths of people dependent on this public sector employment, but also not really represented in the discussions about that public sector employment at all. Right. Right. So um, my book is about Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of a history of the labor market change, basically in Pittsburgh from the fifties to the end of the 20th century. And, you know, one thing I learned pretty quickly in doing this. So I, I wanted to study Pittsburgh because it would seem like a very kind of neat, clear example of this phenomenon, right? It was very specialized industrial city, obviously in steel um, for much of the 20th century, late 19th to 20th century. Um, and, you know, went through this very spectacular deindustrialization, uh, which turned out to have been a longer process. That was one of the things I found, but certainly culminating in the early eighties um, after the, after the Volcker shock. Um, and then, you know, is a city that has had this very vaunted, you know, post-industrial recovery, tech industry, universities, all the same shit, um, and has this enormous healthcare industry um, to the point that the tallest building on the skyline, U.S. Steel Tower, which is built to be the headquarters of U.S. Steel in the 60s, um, its largest tenant is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. So they took USS off, off of the large, tallest tower on the skyline and put UPMC up there like very symbolically capturing this transformation, UPNC, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, um, it's the largest private employer in Pennsylvania. Now it's over 100,000 workers, I think. You know, they have, I can't remember how, 20, 30-something hospitals at least, but, you know, a million other things they do too. Um, and, you know, there's a very long-standing kind of labor struggle to organize workers, low-wage workers there and so on. Um, and one of the things that I realized in doing this research was that um, the connection between the history of the steel industry and the history, the emergence of the healthcare industry should not be understood as separate phases in a sequence. 
um, like the cycle of capitalist development and the cycle of working class composition and recomposition uh, is not discrete episodes like, you know, this week's episode, next week's episode. Um, rather, because of how capital accumulates and because of also how living labor survives and multiplies, um, these, these things are interconnected with each other. Um, and the, so both the size and shape and also the, the phenomenon of like invisibility that we're talking about of low wage work in the service economy has to do with this connection backward to the history of manufacturing. Uh, one early clue of this at some point doing this research, I found, um, I like, I looked up, you know, major urbanized county counties in the U S by the proportion of their workforce in the census category, healthcare and social assistance. And uh, let me just read you this list. I have to pull it up here. Hang on. Um, because I think it will, the pattern I'm describing will be immediately evident. Okay. These are top 25 urbanized counties in the United States by percentage of their workforce employed in healthcare and social assistance in 2017. Number one is the Bronx. Number two is Philadelphia. Number three is New Haven County. Number four is Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland. Number five is Kings County, which is Brooklyn. Number six is Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh. I'll just go through the cities down the rest of the list. Boston, Newark, Rochester, Worcester, Lynn, Hartford, Quincy, St. Louis, Queens, Milwaukee, Yonkers, Buffalo, Hempstead, that's Long Island, Baltimore, Detroit, St. Petersburg, Florida, Portland, Oregon, Cincinnati, McAllen, Texas. So uh, you have to get down to like 20 or so before you're talking about anything besides like a Northeastern or Midwestern Rust Belt County. Um, in terms of the places that have the largest healthcare sectors in terms of employment. That's crazy. Yeah. (laughs) And you would think it would be like Florida and Arizona, right? Because of age. Um, And St. Petersburg does show up there, but at like 22. Um, And so that made me realize that there is some uh, after image type effect here in which the history of um, manufacturing did something to the healthcare industry, and I can tell you more about what. Um, and uh, that would help me, und- I figured that would help me kind of understand both its size and its shape and this kind of invisibility thing. Hmm. So what what did happen? Because yeah. like that's, <laughs> that to me is one of the, one of my most provocative theses uh, that I have floated for a long time as part of the reason why um, that it's hard to get socialized medicine in the United States because it you would need to also make the healthcare market more efficient. That would lead to a lot of hiring of nurses and whatnot, of course, but it also lead to a massive disemployment of a lot of people who are kind of invisible in the discussion. And that would create immediately, it would expose further vulnerabilities. And there are socialists who, who, you know, I'm not against, obviously, uh, socialized medicine. Um, and I'm not using this as a reason why we shouldn't pursue it, but it's something that we'd have to think about as we pursue it. And there are a few people who have, but by and large, I don't hear it talked about enough. Um, and you're kind of indicating that that maybe this was more deliberate than I thought. That this No, I don't think, <laughs> oh, it, was de- I don't think it was deliberate. Um, it's not deliberate. It's just an accident of like, okay, we have all this uh, excess labor, basically. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a few pieces to it. So one is um, the 
public-private nature of our welfare system, right? So there's all of these sections of the American welfare state that are privatized. And we should still think of them as the welfare state because they are dependent on um, political class struggle in a variety of ways um, and are mediated through the state, but are administered and owned in various configurations in the private sector. So this is actually something I've been really focusing on lately because I've always been interested in the difference between Fordism and neoliberalism. But this that you're talking about right now is actually a a consistency. A continuity, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, um, like, right. So um, basically, you know, I think it's helpful to start the story in the moment when, like, the Popular Front and the CIO slam into McCarthyism. Right. Um, We're agreed. <laughs> or vice versa, probably is a better way of narrating that action. Um, and, um, you know, there's a million things that are important about that moment. But one of them is... Uh, that that sets the historical constraint on the continued expansion of the public sector welfare state, largely, right? I mean, there are smaller uh, versions of it that continue to grow over time, but most particularly Medicare and Medicaid, which we can get to in a second. Um, but Truman's drive for Medicare for all, well, he didn't call it that, right? He would have called it a national health plan, um, is defeated in that moment, in that context of the beginning of the Cold War. And in particular, the CIO unions, which are the main mass constituency for that for that campaign, um, the historian Alan Derrickson has a really good has really good writing about this. Uh, the CIO unions realize, like this is looking like it might not work out. We're kind of on the defensive anyway because of the onset of the Cold War. Maybe we should kind of gradually withdraw from the field of contestation over this and kind of leave Harry hanging. Um, and we, you know, our political power is really diminished, but we still have a lot of economic power. We can still really grind auto or coal or steel to a halt, you know, in our contract strike. And so let's use our next contract strike to get private sector health benefits. Like, what if we did that instead and pensions? Um, and so basically in 48, 49, 50, 51, you see the industrial unions all make this move. Uh, in 1949, there's a pair of steel industry cases in the federal judiciary that determine that um, what are then called fringe benefits are a mandatory subject of collective bargaining. So any recognized union in collective bargaining, uh, its employer must bargain over these things with it. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, then basically over the course of the 50s, Employment based, I mean, it has important institutional precursors, but employment based healthcare spreads across the unionized labor market this way. Um, and that's really where it comes from as a concept, like employment based. That's really its origin, I think, in the most important way. Like I say, it has important precursors in the 30s and 40s and even before. But I think it's this moment of defeat imposed on the industrial union movement that establishes employment based healthcare as um, the kind of core, a core principle of the labor market in the U.S., um, a core part of labor discipline, as well as a core principle of stratification of workers, right? Because now there are these privatized islands of economic security, uh, you know, around the steel industry, around the auto industry, um, which differentiate workers from one another. Um, right? Like, are you an auto worker or a steel worker or the legal dependent of an auto worker or a steel worker who has access to that health plan? Or are you a low wage worker in a 
you know, more marginal sector of the labor market, non-union, don't have access to that kind of security. And that differentiation becomes really, really important for the story as it goes on. Um, so few further things I'll say about that. Um, one is, first of all, um, the, the position of the wife to return to socialist feminism is quite important here. Mm-hmm. Um, right. The, the uh, one thing that this kind of new economic security does is establish as a kind of new historical norm, the industrial breadwinner, non-working housewife dyad um, in which she, his, his economic security is extended to her through the legal relation of marriage in return, she's mobilized to provide a non-waged care to him and their children and their parents and whoever right. else, right? The family wage system, basically. The family wage system, exactly. Um, and then at some level, that principle is kind of generalized beyond the family itself in the larger kind of internal differentiated relations that mm. compose the working class. When you think about these islands I was talking about. So like, what is health insurance, right? It's a voucher. It's a coupon. Uh, it's a kind of income you can spend at one place, basically, or one kind of place. Um, and when you think about what it buys, especially in the middle 20th century, but even down to the present, healthcare consists more than anything else of labor. It's a labor-intensive good. Yeah, um, insurance becomes kind of like a, a a token for access to to one of the most labor healthcare and education are the two most labor intensive things, which is why they're almost impossible to make a profit off on. Right, but exactly. Like, um, not to be all classical LT uh, labor theory of value on people, but it's it's absolutely true. And yes, um, and I think this is the. This is interesting because the name insurance actually obscures this. Interestingly, certain right wingers actually are aware of this that like medical insurance isn't the same as what insurance classically was, which was you know bundled risk. Well, we all know that that uh medical insurance is not bundled risk anymore, like that's not what it's doing, and when it tries to be that, it's a disaster. So, um it it is it is yeah it's what you're saying it's you're it is it is a it is a way to get access to labor for a cost that you have already theoretically paid kind of somehow. right right <laughs> and and then like if you think about the kind of this differentiation of the working class I'm talking about um you know something else that the Taft Hartley Act does is it establishes that hospitals are not employers for the purposes of collective bargaining. Um, and they don't have to, you know, the hospitals are exempt from minimum wage law until the sixties, exempt from, from the Wagner Act till the seventies. Um, and, you know, it's, this is the most marginal sector of the labor market, which is occupied overwhelmingly by women in a place like Pittsburgh, particularly black women, right. It's going to be racialized in a kind of unsurprising way. Um, and uh, so there's this kind of principle of racialized and gendered inequality that's built into the structure of the labor market mm-hmm. by this differentiation of the working class that is imposed on the industrial union movement. That's sort of part one of the story. Then part two of the story is like, what happens when deindustrialization does actually affect, you know, does strike this kind of social and economic system that is organized around industrial employment. 
Um, well, the only thing left is the hospitals. Right. Yeah. Uh, so like the industrialization makes the population older and poorer and sicker. Um, mm-hmm. And getting more so actually. Even yeah. Like by, right. by um, the year. Yeah. So like um, just a couple kind of pieces of evidence that are interesting around this one um, by 1990, after several decades of deindustrialization, Allegheny County is the second oldest county in America after Broward in Florida. Um, so Allegheny County really kind of is, leads this trend. But, you know, same thing would be true in Detroit or in Buffalo or in Rochester or Milwaukee or Yonkers or any of these kinds of places. Go to um, the Rust Belt and look at the gray hairs. Right. Two, in terms of getting poorer, and that's sort of self-evident, I think, Um and then three, in terms of sicker, this is a kind of interesting and complicated one because there's one, a direct medical shock or like health shock produced by like economic catastrophe. Um, there's a great study these economists did in 2009 of Pennsylvania where they were like, let's go look at everyone who filed for unemployment insurance in Pennsylvania in the early 80s, which is a large group of people. You know, unemployment got as high as 17% in Pittsburgh. Um and uh, let's identify within that group the high seniority industrial workers. So that's people who have been in their jobs in the steel industry a long time. And then once we've identified high seniority industrial work- steel workers who lose their job in their early 80s, let's see how long they lived. And the answer is that their risk of, morta- risk of death, their mortality rate, um, increased 50 to 100% in the immediate aftermath of, you know, that wave of mass layoffs, it eventually regressed back down, not all the way to the mean, but, you know, toward the mean. So if you survive the first few years, then your risk of dying would only be like 20% higher or something than average or than expected. Um, Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there's a huge health shock, which consists of suicide, uh, you know, alcohol and substance abuse. Uh, You know, there's like a huge spike in in heart disease cancer and just domestic violence. Like you can observe all of this happen historically. Um, so that's one way in which the population gets observably sicker, but then there's also this secondary mechanism, which is important um, because the healthcare system is this extremely weird public private nexus, which is shaped by public policy determined through kind of class struggle in various ways through, you know, complex equilibria of class struggle. Um but is owned and administered privately and is connected to private profits in various ways, even for nonprofit institutions. Um, it means that and it's subsidized publicly through both Medicare and Medicaid and through, um, you know, various kind of federal guarantees and subsidies and protections for private benefits. Um, it means that actually, even as other forms of economic security are being stripped away, health insurance remains in surprisingly good shape in places like Pittsburgh. It's not to say individual workers don't have the experience of losing a job and losing their insurance. Tons do. But compared to everything else, health insurance does way better. As yeah, a it's form. not totally decimated. <laughs> yeah. Like that, you know, obviously Medicare and Medicaid are part of that. Medicare, because people are old. Medicaid, because in addition to, um, you know, being public, it's also counter cyclical. So like if you get poorer, you're likely to qualify for it. Right. Right. And so Medicaid grows in Pennsylvania across the eighties, even as food stamps and programs like that are getting shredded. Um, like the actual budgetary footprint of Medicaid expands quite dramatically. 
Um, but then there's also like all of the retirees who have locked in their retiree health care and which is hundreds of thousands of people. And there's um, all of the early retirees who at some point between like 1977 and 1985, read the writing on the wall and take the buyout, um, which guarantees them their health care, you know, for the rest of their lives in return for retiring early. And so between these things, you just like have this huge block of insured people. Uh, as the kind of only surviving bastion of economic um, security against, you know, other kinds of kind of pressure on incomes and economic ruin. And so what that means is like, if you have a sort of socioeconomic, you're going through this kind of socioeconomic trauma, the shock, if part of that trauma manifests as a health need, which some of it will be, right? Like most likely, you know, if your community is disintegrating, it's going to affect you in a multidimensional way. Yeah, One dimension. Substance abuse and stuff. Exactly. Tells with right. that. Yeah. yeah. So like you see substance, you see uh, detox clinics grow a ton in this period. Yeah. Uh, and that's a perfect example of like, if you can produce some of your socioeconomic shock into the form of a health need, you can actually make a claim on some services. Um, and so that means that what they call healthcare utilization, right? That like the intensity of use of the healthcare system goes through the roof in response to deindustrialization. Um, because it's like actually this one thing that people can still get and they can kind of make serve various of their needs in complicated ways. Um, there's a lot more to the story than, in, but the, the kind of long and short of it is like that, that causes the healthcare system to expand really rapidly between the mid seventies and 1990 and then to hire. And of course, who did they hire? Uh, surplus women. Yeah. Um, like the daughters and wives of now laid off steel workers or, or, you know, in the kind of black sector at the bottom of the labor market, the daughters and wives of the men who at this point were never going to get to be steel workers. Um, yeah. This was, this was something I realized when I, when I, and it has changed post COVID. I admit that. But when I was telling people for years, I was like, the net aggregate of the working class person is a single mother. And that's because of the amount of healthcare work in the society. And weirdly, um, some of what you're describing was already kind of known to me a little bit, but by accident, by that, you remember that Hannah Rosen book that came out probably when you were in college called the end of men. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It actually talks about this indirectly. Like, yeah, I never about, read it. Yeah, it's not a good book, but it, it basically like it's a victory for feminism because work just became feminized, basically because the only thing left is healthcare work and care work and education. So it was, I was like, so it's a victory for feminism to have a race to the bottom, but um, never mind. It's a, it, that part of the book is dumb, but it actually describes what you're talking about because um, this is how we how like when you think about it, when people are like, oh, the PMC, I'm like. You guys realize if you include nurses and teachers in the PMC, it's like 40% of the fucking population. Like, it's a huge amount, and it's mostly female. Like, um, and it's highly gendered work, and it's and it's valued or devalued partly based off gender. And this is this is one of the things where, like, yeah, I'm a classical Marxist, and yes, there are all kinds of modern feminist stuff that annoys me, but that is true. If you work in education, you see it, you're like, oh. Okay, yeah, like why, why, one of the reasons why lower ed is, I mean, lower, uh, like primary school is, yeah, yeah it is, is less valid in secondary school 
and secondary school is less valued than university um, is that literally it's not the only reason, but literally like the amount of share of the work that is women um, increases. And let's be honest, if you're a man who goes into primary school education, people think something's wrong with you. Um, so, so it's, it's an interesting thing to, to notice. And I realize that schooling's not as big of a shift. Um, it, it, it's parallel though. And it has grown actually in a parallel way. Yeah. It also, yeah. The, the schooling thing is, is both staffing needs have grown and we have administrative cost disease, just like medicine. So, which is propping up large sectors of the, of, of the economy, like at all, because, because, you know, capitalists are evil, but they don't really want mass death. Cause that's going to destroy their ability to hold on to power. If nothing else, <laughs> like, um, so at least I hope they, that they still think that way. Um, uh, so that makes sense. Um, it, it also makes sense that like, I don't think people realize this is interesting. Um, cause I, I, I haven't read your book yet, but I have read articles you've written about this where I was not aware of how like low skilled hospital work was considered until the 1960s and seventies. Um, and how like it was exempted from, from like, you know, labor laws and, and ways that was actually surprising to me. Cause I was like, Oh, now it makes sense. Why? When I was young, when in my, in my teens and twenties, Every working class mom was trying to become a nurse when they had when it had not been appealing to their parents. And now I'm like, oh, okay, now now I get it. I never yeah. understood it before. Yeah. Like, like why wasn't it appealing before the, the end of the 20th century? Like <laughs> Right. So it, I mean that depends on the kind of expansion of the system. You know, it, labor law is extended into healthcare in the 70s, although only in kind of compromised terms. Like you still you can't quite organize in the same way in a hospital or nursing home that you would in a, another kind of workplace. Yeah. Yeah. All um, public sector unions, I think outside of like three States have significant limitations on what they can actually do in ways that I don't think people realize. <laughs> like, yeah. And even, I mean, most, most hospitals are private, but they're still kind of under those same burdens. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, you know, there's a story I tell in the introduction of the book about, uh, so I start the book with UPMC, this hospital giant in Pittsburgh, saying in 2013, in response to, in, like, in litigating basically an NLRB case against SCIU, they claimed at one point um, that to have no employees, um, and, you know, for purposes of collective bargaining. And in, the particularities of this were a claim about, like, parent company and subsidiaries. You know, you have to take it up with each of our many subsidiary agencies. You can't go after us as a corporation as a whole. Um, but I then kind of wind the clock back to 1940. Um, so after the Wagner Act passed in 35, whether or not hospitals were covered by it was indeterminate until Taft-Hartley settled it in 47. Um, mm. And so uh, there was a period where in particular CIO unions in places where they were strong, like Pittsburgh, started you know exploring the possibility of organizing these places. In New York, this happened too. And that was really in New York with the origin of what would become local 1199, which would then become SEIU healthcare over time. Um, so in Pittsburgh, they try to organize West Penn Hospital. They have a little strike. Um, and all the hospitals of the region sue uh, the union 
to, uh, to get an injunction against them going on strike. And in their, uh, in their lawsuit, which I believe they won, um, they say that uh, hospitals are not employers that, you know, what they do, what we're doing is not, uh, you know, is not a commercial transaction. This is if we're philanthropic entities. We're not covered by the law. Our worker, we don't have employees. Um, so the, the specific legal reasoning in 1940 versus 2013 is not the same, but the core of the claim really is the same, um, which is that this sector is outside of the economy. Um and it exists to service the inside of the economy, right? Like the, the real world of, of, you know, commerce and production, but we're, we are kind of an external adjunct to that. Yeah. Which is um, why private healthcare. Is so weird even to understand in private market terms, because it is exempted from a lot of things that markets, uh, private market actors usually have to deal with. Yeah. Like, right. Um, and like the whole thing is in fact, it's, in a sense, true, and that like the whole thing is actually the creation of public policy, even though it's delegated in various ways to private actors to administer and to own and to profit from. Um, like the dynamic is class struggle, uh, first in you know industries like steel and auto, uh, generates pressure on the state um, to you know like negotiate a, co- a class compromise. Uh, around questions of economic security for the working class, which then generates healthcare policy institutions of different kinds, but because those are lodged within the kind of largest, larger capitalist, uh, you know, mode of production and capitalist state, uh, take the form of these private and often for-profit actors, which then have to, you know, kind of respond again to new rounds of class struggle. So that's like the kind of basic dynamic. But the thing that I'm trying to introduce to that also is uh, over time, basically the victory of capital in 20th century class struggle um, and the bottoming out of working class living conditions that it affected caused this industry to grow and to prosper, but also then to produce its own proletarianization process. Um, so Which is coming to a head kind of now. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, um, while we think of t- both teachers and nurses as middle, cl- as middle class jobs and in terms of income, they kind of are the conditions of working in them have gotten so bad. And the ways that like both of them expect a lot, like, Oh yeah, we pay you. Okay. But you're going to have to spend your own money on this, that, or whatever. Like it leads to labor churn. And that's a labor churn that you generally associate in Marxist terms with highly proletarianized positions. Like, yeah, right. I mean, not to mention there's various other things you could name. Like one, uh, nurses are very often, and you alluded to this a moment ago, at the apex of a kind of family structure of like a wider working class kind of family system in which they are the person who's gotten the most education, has the highest pay, maybe owns a home that like their unemployed son also lives with them in, uh, or they're helping their daughter, you know, pay for community college. But, like they are often um, like a nursing degree and a nursing job are often the, pro- the product of a kind of collective family effort. Um, uh, yeah, for for sure. I mean, my my father was a mechanic, and my mom was a nurse, and she became a nurse in her in her late forties. Um, and like, uh, nobody in my family was educated before her. She technically only beat me by getting a degree, like by a couple years. And and um, yeah, and also I can say that that ticket to the middle class that they were promised was 
ended up being kind of bullshit because the conditions of, of the job right. deteriorated her health because she entered it late um, so quickly. And um, the way she dealt with that was so socially destructive that she couldn't do the job for very long. And I, she's not the only, I mean, like, but like, that'd be a kind of common story. Yeah, I mean, like Nurse Jackie is a, is a stereotype for a reason. Like, like right, yeah. and, and and then on top of that, like in education to some extent, but especially in healthcare, the nurse is actually at the apex of not just the family thing, but also the occupational hierarchy, which yep. goes way deep down from there. I mean, down you know from RN to LP, there aren't that many LPNs anymore, but to LPNs to CNAs, certified nursing assistants. All the techs, like um, para or uh, and para professionals, like you know, X-ray tech, uh, respiratory tech, and then you know, from there into like uh, you know, like I said, nursing assistant, food supply, cleaning. Um, I mean, large proportion of the healthcare workforce is actually in these kind of like low wage, uncredentialed, um, yep. or you know, re- lightly credentialed. Uh, lines of activity credentialed you know right or not even potentially Uh, one interesting thing that's happened since the 80s is um so in response to this kind of rising demand wrought by deindustrialization hospitals grew really fast in the 70s and 80s um but they were doing all of these functions that were like um basically semi-long-term care and social work type functions like not acute conditions but and this is how they played this role in helping, you know, buffer the shock of deindustrialization. But that caused the Medicare budget to inflate and Congress kind of freaked out about it and rewrote the rules for how Medicare pays hospitals in the 80s um, mm-hmm. in order to force marketization on them. So in some sense, healthcare actually benefited from the Volcker shock rather than get, getting contracted, grew through it. But then Congress brought the hammer down a few years later. Um, and the effect of that was to force these kind of long-term care and social work type functions out of the hospital, right? To force hospitals to specialize in basically more remunerative, intensive, and acute forms of care. Um, and to displace these other functions into nursing homes, into home care. Um, and so um, since especially 1990 or so, basically hospitals that have been able to navigate that transition that's particularly academic hospitals are well positioned to do that um have gotten really rich and consolidated the market and acquired all the old community hospitals that could not navigate that transition successfully um like it used to be in pittsburgh that every steel mill had a hospital across the street that like took care of everyone in the town and now all those places are owned by upmc and many of them got shut down um and a lot of those older functions that mobilize the kind of a lot of the lower strata of the healthcare workforce are now happening in nursing homes and in private homes. Mm. Yeah. Which is, which is why there is some legitimacy to, you know, two years ago when they were talking about the care worker crisis and um, it is a real, I mean, for Marxist, it's something I would say for Marxist, if you care about labor or something, you actually really have to care about. Like, yeah. Well, and like, you know, I just think, I mean, a friend of mine, I remember once, I won't say who, but once tweeted like, oh, you're you're a class reductionist? Cool. So like, what's the main industry where you live? How's the workforce structured? Like, what kind of market does it compete in? Oh, you don't know? And I feel like, like in some ways, this whole project for me is an attempt to like, actually be someone who knows the answer to those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, like, it's, yeah. not en- it's not enough to just say like, yeah, yeah, working class. Like, 
Well, yeah, I mean, this leads to what Adam Tews talks about where, where like, and I've talked about it too, for a lot of these people working class is a floating signifier that has like an image of the 1950s in their head. Um, But I'm like, have you ever known that person? Like how many, how many industrial steel workers do you know? Because uh, I know like two and I'm from the working class, like explicitly by the way you define it. And so like, I don't know who you're talking about, man. I know way more nurses and like teachers' aides and like drug techs and and you know service service sector workers than I know fucking factory workers. Yeah, and you know it's often intellectually challenging. It's hard work to like actually understand what are the kind of forces that structure the wage labor relationship now and what are its in its details, right? And it's like in its complexity. Um, but you know, it's I think helpful if we want to actually understand, uh, you know, the sites of potential struggle and organization. I think that's a great point to end off on, and I'd like to thank you for your time. But thanks for having I, me. Yeah, it's funny as we were talking, I'm like, huh, your entire research project is like bared out by my actual life. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I'm I am one of these. Uh, uh, professional strata, professional class people who comes from the working class, whose parents, you know, my 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 stepfather was downwardly mobile from from a kind of old middle class. My mother was upward, you know, upwardly mobile from sharecroppers, um, and then became a waitress, and then became a nurse, and that's also if I think about my hometown, uh, Macon, Georgia. Mill town to military town to now just hospitals and, and schools. That's the only thing really keeping anyone employed. And a few, a few small factories that employ like a hundred people. Yeah. You know, yeah. like that's all that's left. Um, and that's not even in the rust belt. Like that's just in the, that's just in the midsize Southeast. Uh, so it's, you know, my ex-wife was from Allegheny County. So I know all about it. And like, it's something that I that I've really seen, and I think Pennsylvania, in general, uh, n- n- not to toot your horn, but in general, is actually a, a, to understand a lot of like even racial dynamics, but especially class dynamics. You need to look at like the middle Midwest and and then Pennsylvania, Ohio, and uh, Michigan to really understand, because I think a lot of the rest of the country is beginning to look like that. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, it was that was um, in many ways the core, obviously, of American industrial capitalism and its disintegration and disintegration of the kind of race and class formations that went with it. Um, I do think foretell something broader. BLM always starts in the industrial rust belt. Yeah. Like when it's an organic movement. All right. Um, Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people check out your work? Um. I mean, I don't have a website, but you just, you know, Google Gabriel Winant, I guess. Um, yeah, 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 I did. <laughs> you find a lot. Um, <laughs> uh, um, and people should check out your book um, as well. And I will put links to that. And I will put links to the M plus one article in the show notes. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for supporting VarnBlog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find 
us on Patreon, where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video, and other perks, such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher of choice. Have a great evening. Thank you.